welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on European Questions, Turkish Angles, which we organise in association with the LSE Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies, who I'm delighted to say is also with us on the panel this evening in the figure of Chef Kepkanuk. Um, I think today we've got to acknowledge too that when we're looking at Turkish angles on things uh, that we're talking in the shadow of the earthquake that hit Turkey yesterday and um, although obviously it's not the theme of our discussion I, I think we should acknowledge the sadness of that. Um, something a little bit more lighthearted that uh, the idea of doing something on Europe's banking system which um, would seem to lie quite a long way from the embrace of the Forum for European Philosophy um, arose for me from research that I was doing two years ago on um, a course I was teaching on Europe beyond modernity in the European Institute and that course concerns itself early on with uh, Nietzsche and his claim that we've got to understand Europe's present condition in the wake of what he called the death of God. And so that, as it were, the transition of Europe from a modern period into a period beyond modernity would be interpreted through this event, the death of God. And so I was looking around for <coughs> literature for my students to read, and for me to read for that matter, and I came upon an essay, which is in fact the opening chapter of a book, a book called Capitalism and Religion, and the chapter was delightfully called The Murder of God. So there I was, I thought, okay, capitalism and religion, this looked like all in the, in the, in the scheme of things that we were gonna get a, uh, an introduction to Nietzsche or something like that. Um, but it turned out that in this whodunit of The Murder of God, the one who done it was the Bank of England. And uh, this, this book was written by Philip Goodchild, who I'm delighted is here tonight, who may say one or two things about that, but is going to join us in a, a wider discussion. Um, I thought at first, I, I, when he says, you know, as it were, who done it, it's the Bank of England, it's slightly tongue in cheek, but actually, it's not really very tongue-in-cheek at all in the end. He, he really <laughs> that is the account that he gives, and it's absolutely brilliant, and I recommend it to all of you. But I thought it would be very interesting, to, given that Philip had explored some of the uh, trajectory of the development of Europe's banking system in that kind of incredible environment of, uh, of um, the death of God, to bring him into dialogue with people who had also had some kind of interest in the banking system, and in particular, obviously, the idea of a Turkish angle tonight with Shevket uh, Pamuk, who, whose knowledge and, and research on, uh, on, as it were, Ottoman banking and the development of a banking system, a parallel and sometimes quite different banking system in the Ottoman time and into, into modern uh, Turkey, um, as it were, traces a parallel course, but perhaps with a different narrative, and I, I wanted to draw those together. But I also wanted, because uh, one could hardly forget it, um, this banking system, which the Bank of England managed to be some kind of initiator of, 
um, isn't in good shape uh, at the moment. Um, in fact, you can hardly get it off the news, and for at least since 2007, 8, if not before. And so I wanted also to get into view and into our, into our discussion um, somebody with experience and expertise of something rather contemporary, the contemporary setup, and, and so Valtrell Cheke, who's uh, from the European Institute colleague of mine, um, has agreed very kindly to contribute in, in that dimension particularly. Uh, they, they've all been pushing themselves out of their normal comfort zone in order to talk to each other, and I'm incredibly grateful to them for that. Uh, they'll all have a little chance at the beginning to talk without interruption, um, probably 10 minutes or so, and then um, once, once they're through that first bit, um, we'll see if we can get a conversation going and see, we'll see what kind of common questions they have or whether there are uh, interpretive con conflicts between them. And then after about an hour of all of that business, uh, we'll, we'll let you in on the act as well and uh, have questions and contributions from you. Um, but we're going to start with Philip, who can stay sitting <coughs> nicely mic'd up, and uh, it's, it's his go. Thank you very much, Simon, for the uh, kind invitation. Um, when one receives invitations of this kind, one is never quite sure if it's uh, an extraordinary honour to be invited to speak, or whether one's performing some kind of favour, or perhaps it's a poison chalice, and uh, one is uh, subjecting oneself to potential humiliation. I come here with a little trepidation, therefore, to point out that, that perhaps there are only very few kinds of elementary economic relationships. Some emerge from and generate long-term relationships of mutual trust and shared interest. And here I'm thinking of gifts and partnerships. <laughs> Others serve the interests of only one party. And here I'm thinking of theft, fraud, tribute, extortion. And some are conducted with comparative strangers, such as exchange where the goods, services or assets received are meant to guarantee that the relationship was indeed worthwhile. Now, a complex relation emerges whenever exchange is not simultaneous, and this is debt. Debt, I think, involves each of the preceding elements. Confidence that the debt is capable of being repaid, the risk of theft or extortion if there's a default by the debtor or the creditor raises the interest rate, and exchange, for when the debt is finally repaid, then it can be accounted as if it had been an exchange all along. Now, any long-term economic activity involving interaction between strangers involves debt. Debt in this respect, is a good thing. In a capitalist economy where profits are planned over the course of time, some kind of debt is necessary, healthy, and essential. It's the requirement of non-simultaneous exchange. Debt, then, is a measure of our confidence in ourselves and in each other and in the wider economy. Yet debt only appears as exchange with anticipated hindsight. 
while on the way and under risk, its reality is more than can be counted in terms of money. So what I'm suggesting is debt is not purely an economic issue. It's also an issue of morality, of politics, of philosophy, and perhaps even of theology. And this is in respect to a certain question. <coughs> is our confidence misplaced? What kind of economic conduct is worthy of confidence? The facile answer is that the conduct most likely to enhance your credit rating is the repayment of debt. This is facile in that it fails to tell us which are the healthy debts, the debts that should be undertaken in the interests of all. How to pay off your debt is a matter of common sense, decrease spending and increase income. And this is the apparent challenge facing European and United States governments. Yet, how is the debt to be reduced in the global financial system as a whole? For if all economic agents decrease their spending, how are they to find a greater income? Where's it going to come from? It looks like a simple balance of payments problem. Apart from inflation, devaluation and default, how are debts to be settled? The past few decades have seen a circulation of debt. Developing nations, businesses, consumers, mortgage holders, financial institutions and major governments have each in turn or simultaneously been exposed to excessive levels of debt. Debt is passed around, but when is it successfully paid off? Moreover, if all major governments and corporations paid off their debts, and no longer issued bonds, how would banks hold reserves of wealth? Where would we find money for trade? It would seem then that debt increases in a global financial system, but it cannot decrease without impoverishing the wider economy. So I would suggest that this facile answer is, uh, it leads to a facile moral maxim, perhaps it depends on one. You should only lend to those who are capable of repaying debts, and our current predicament derives from the gross flouting of this principle. Current sovereign debt crises are a direct result of a recent financial crisis, whether through loss of revenue from taxation, increased demands for public spending, or insuring or bailing out the banking system. Yet here I'd like to pose another naive question. If the excess borrowing of all governments, financial institutions, businesses and consumers has been borrowed in the form of money and that money has been spent, then it should have been transferred into someone's bank account somewhere. It should still be in the same financial system and it should function as a bank deposit against which further loans can then be made. Why then, my naive question goes, was there ever a credit crisis? Should not the global financial system be as wealthy as before? Where has all this wealth gone? Well, the answer might be that most of what we count as money has been created as debt in the fractional reserve banking system. 
banks create new money by lending in excess of their reserves. This has happened uh, throughout history in numerous times and places, but often with uh, very um, unstable consequences. And I think the first time that a bank was specifically set up to lend in excess of its reserves was when the Bank of England was set up in 1694 to lend £1.2 million to the king to go off and fight his wars, a permanent loan never to be repaid. The debt was seen as permanent and a good thing, but paid off at 8% interest. So stakes in that 8% interest could be made into £20 notes and distributed then to worthy debtors. The money that was put up for the bank was in two places at once. On the one hand, King William III spent it. On the other hand, it was still lent out to all sorts of ordinary people or um, worthy commercial people who could then use it for their own transactions. That's the basis of the modern money system where money is created as debt. And it continues today when, uh, when banks lend in excess of their reserves. The reserves are transferred from one bank to another, but they never leave the banking system as a whole. And on that basis, they can function as a deposit against which further loans can be made. And so you get these huge rates of leverage appearing. So returning to my script. Just as financial assets are someone else's liabilities, the assets held by banks are someone else's debts. And such debts have to be paid with interest at the specified time. And an important question is if these debts are created out of nothing and are then paid, repaid with interest, is this interest just or is it usurious in some way. But since the debts have to be repaid, our money will expire. The only way to repay such debts is to obtain money that is already the liability of others. That is, one hopes that in the system somewhere, as a whole, someone will have the confidence to take on fresh debts. That's when we have a problem, when no one has got the confidence to take on fresh debts. And moreover, if we all try to pay off our debts, then even if this were possible, it would be an unravelling of all the bonds of confidence in the entire economy that generate economic activity. So repayment of debt may inspire confidence in individual conduct, but only at the cost of confidence in the wider economy. A credit crisis comes when there's no longer the confidence to create longer-term loans. During the 2008 crisis, short-term loans were available for banks in turn, but not longer-term loans. Uh, a few months ago, I got the chance to pose my naive question, uh, why was there a credit crisis, to the risk director of the Alliance and Leicester Bank. Uh, during the time of the crisis, and he told me it's not, it wasn't a liquidity crisis, there was no shortage of money, it was a credit crisis. You could get short-term loans, but no one would give you longer-term loans. To solve the crisis, governments have stepped in with the longer-term loans, but now find that the financial markets are worried about their solvency. 
in such particular cases. So extracting a higher interest rate in fear of default, the bond markets apparently <coughs> seek to impose discipline upon profligate governments because the bond markets act in immediate self-interest. But in doing so, they threaten the economic system as a whole. So a debt-fueled financial economy may seem extraordinarily healthy in times of growth, as debt and debt-fueled speculation can drive the creation of wealth. Yet a continual source of new debtors or increasing debt is required to keep the system going. The pressure to create new debts may have led to some unethical banking practices, as well as some unwise political decisions. But if we hadn't had those mistakes, then a failure to find new debtors would simply have pricked the bubble of debt field speculation rather sooner. In the last resort, governments and central banks have had to step in as debtors of last resort. <coughs> this does little to reduce the overall debt burden. I think there is no solution in our current system. In the long run, as Keynes famously said, we're all dead, or rather, inflation, default, or devaluation may be postponed, but will inevitably reach us in the end. Perhaps the dominance of the United States and European economies will come to an end. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and the Middle East will initially be struck hard by losing their markets, but may have the capacity to re-engage their development independently of the West, if they have the courage to take on fresh debt. In a world of depleted resources and exhausted economies, contours of a new global order are difficult to discern. One fundamental question is how the world may avoid the rerun of the aftermath of the Great Depression, fascism, communism, world war. Another fundamental question is if our entire economic system is merely a matter of misplaced confidence, a mere accounting convention, <coughs> then what other system can be instituted that is worthy of confidence? Thank you very much. <coughs> right, I will hold the pause until we're done. Um, but now we're going to move over to Chef Ed. He's going to tell us, give us our turn. Thank you. Okay. Good evening. Like Philip, I want to begin by exploring the origins of credit and banking, not in the European context, but in the context of the Middle East. And of course the key theme I want to explore is the prohibition, the Islamic prohibition on interest and usury. And how in fact Middle East society, the Ottomans, found ways to circumvent this prohibition and I think these mechanisms um, constitute today the historical origins of so-called Islamic banking. So I will begin with the past, but I will link it to the present. It has often been assumed that the prohibition of interest in Islam prevented the development of credit or at best imposed rigid obstacles in its ways. Similarly, the apparent absence of deposit banking and lending by banks in, uh, in the 
Islamic societies of the past, has led many observers to conclude that financial institutions and instruments were, by and large, absent in the societies of the Middle East. It is true that a religiously inspired prohibition against usurious transactions was a powerful feature well, around the Mediterranean, not only in the east, around the eastern Mediterranean, but also in the western half of the Mediterranean, in the Christian West. While the practice of usury and interest is sharply denounced in a number of passages in the Quran and in all subsequent Islamic religious writings, already in the medieval era, Islamic law had provided several means by which the anti-usury prohibition could be in fact circumvented, just as the same prohibitions were circumvented in Europe in the late medieval period. Various legal fictions based primarily on the model of double sale were, if not enthusiastically endorsed by jurists, at least they were not declared invalid. And basically, almost all of these fictions involved some interest payment on credit without calling it interest. In other words, there did not exist an insurmountable barrier against the use of interest-bearing loans for commercial credit. Medieval societies, in, in, both in, in Europe and the Middle East, eventually developed sophisticated instruments and institutions which took into account the exigencies of, uh, of evolving uh, of, of law. And, in the Middle East, as late as the 12th and even the 13th centuries, institutions of credit and finance were actually more developed than those in Western and Southern Europe. In fact, it is widely accepted today that some key institutions of partnership, like the Comenda of medieval Europe, were in fact borrowed from, or they, they orig were in, originated from the southern and eastern part of the Mediterranean. Now moving on to the Ottomans, Ottoman institutions of credit and finance retained this Islamic lineage and remained mostly uninfluenced by the developments in Europe until the end of the 17th century. Neither the Islamic prohibitions against interest and usury nor the absence of formal banking institutions prevented the expansion of credit in Ottoman society. Ottoman entrepreneurs continued to make use of the various uh, business partnerships, these Islamic forms, that, and also dense networks of lenders and borrowers flourished in and around Anatolian cities. We have 
a lot of evidence today about the workings of these of these credit relations from the 15th century onwards in the records of the Islamic courts all across Turkey. And there you see that in cities and even in small villages close to the cities you see many members of each family and many women as well as men borrowing and lending to each other and others and to outsiders and these records leave no doubt that the use of credit was widespread amongst all segments of the urban and even rural society. Most lending and borrowing was small scale but interest was regularly charged on credit. And starting in the 16th century you find in the Ottoman court records explicit reference to interest and the judges presiding over cases involving some disagreement with the, between the borrowers and lenders do not hesitate to call interest interest by in and they did not feel that they needed to hide or resort to tricks uh, uh, when interest payments were involved between the lenders and the borrowers. <clears throat> the largest money lenders, the largest financiers um, in, in the middle, medieval Middle East were Muslim as well as Christian, Jewish, and, and, and if you look at the Ottoman society from 15th, 16th century onwards, interestingly, most the leading financiers, what we economic historians often call bankers without banks, were often Christian, Greek, Armenian, and also Jewish. And uh, they were mobilizing credit from small lenders, but also then they were making big loans, and in the process they were also lending, these big, bigger financiers were also lending to the state and also to the sultan. There is a very interesting case I want to mention, um, uh, the, uh, the emergence of a, of a new institution of lending in the beginning in the 16th century. And these are the so-called cash wakaf <laughs> or cash foundations. <clears throat> now in Islam, foundations are supposed to be established for a pious cause and these are typically assets whose income are set aside for some religious purpose. Many of the, these foundations in Islamic societies of the past and even until recent times were established 
for the purpose of, for example, maintaining the local mosque, for some modest purpose, and many of these foundations had small, uh, modest amount of capital or modest amount of assets. What you find in the 15th and 16th century in the Balkans and in present-day Turkey is the emergence of so-called cash foundations or cash wakf. These are um, institutions in which an individual sets aside a specified amount of cash for a pious purpose. And the income from this cash, and ultimately it's interest income from the cash, this asset, is used for some religious purpose. It could be the maintaining of the local mosque or some other uh, sort of purpose. A colleague of mine, Murat Cizakça, has made detailed study of these wakaf for example, for the city of Bursa from the 16th through the 18th centuries. His research shows that these cash wakaf usually lent small amounts to small borrowers, both to households and small businesses. And a large part of these loans remained consumption-oriented loans. His studies suggest that any time, say in the 18th century, as much as 10% uh, of the population of the city of Bursa were involved in either, uh, involved either as lenders or borrowers in, in the, as part of the cash lockoff. What is interesting is that, um, not surprisingly, a lively debate developed during the, this period within the Ottoman religious hierarchy regarding whether these cash wakaf or these cash foundations should be considered legitimate. After all, Islam, on the face of it, prohibits the use of interest. And here are these foundations which are using this interest income for the, for, often for a religious purpose. There were opposition amongst the ulema to, this, to these cash foundations, but the majority of the ulema remained eminently pragmatic. And at the very end, you find at the end of this debate the Sheikh al-Islam, the religious leader in the 16th century, was forced to issue a decision, an opinion, that ended the debate. Ebu Sud Efendi defended the practice of cash wakaf and the use of the interest income from purely from a practical point of view. And he argued that abolishing the 
interest would lead to the collapse of many pious foundations, uh, which would then harm the Muslim community. So he argued that as long as these, the income, the interest income from these cash wakuf were used for a good purpose, they should continue. Okay? So I present to you this very pragmatic interpretation and how from the medieval period through early modern period to the very recent period, societies in the Middle East, Turkish society, found ways of living with this apparent prohibition on interest. And that was the basis, those were the origins of the, in effect, the banking system and the credit system in the Middle East. This contemporary term, this modern term, Islamic banking, is in fact a very new phenomenon. There was no such thing as Islamic banking or Islamic finance, formally speaking. We had these origins in the past, but the term Islamic banking was invented after World War II, and ultimately Islamic banking does something that Islamic societies, societies of the Middle East, knew very well since the medieval period, finding fictions through which they used interest, but they didn't call it interest. And that's basically, at its core, Islamic banking and Islamic finance today. Islamic institutions of Islamic banking and finance call it profit share, but whatever, it is something very, very similar to interest. They recognize, after all, as did medieval societies of the Middle East and the Ottoman society, that economies need to live. They, they need credit, and credit can only exist with interest. Today in Turkey, um, the bank, formal banking system most works overwhelmingly on along modern lines, but there is a small, I won't say tiny, but a small segment which works along the Islamic banking lines, meaning pious Muslims who want to enjoy income from their cash, from their savings, can deposit their income in these Islamic finance institutions or Islamic banks and receive profit share rather than interest. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming and inviting me to this. Um, one could probably uh, summarize the two before that. Philip ended with, we need an alternative, and Shevket uh, was saying there is no alternative, not even in Islamic banking. <laughs> I come a bit to that as well, but what I'm trying to do is, is telling you, you know, what is the significance of banking You're in, in, uh, in, from an economic theory point of view? 
and in the end I will get to you know what is how is this banking crisis resolving itself at the moment in my view uh, what will we see so I end a little bit with something uh, uh, an academic should never do let me talk about the future now first of all when we talk about the European banking system obviously that is as the word system says, it contains very different banks. It's, uh, it's a collective terms that has local savings banks in it, credit institutions that may have their origin in, in uh, self-help movements to farmers or small and medium enterprises, to nationally and internationally present banks, and some of them notoriously too big or too connected to fail. Before I join all those who are very critical of of banks today, um, let me say, ask two things. First of all, is it always the big banks that are the problem? I think not. Spain has a problem with its caixas, C-I-A-I-X-A-S, regional savings banks that have been an instrument of political favoritism and nepotism. You could make the same argument in, in Japan where the postal savings banks are the problem and in the United States where you had a huge uh, credit crisis, credit institution crisis, the savings loans uh, banks that ate up in the end about 3% of GDP in the 1980s. So small is not always beautiful, and we, we, it won't do that we all get together and beat up the big boys on the block. Let me just say that very clearly. Which raises an even more profound question. Do we need all these greedy, incompetent, myopic banks? <laughs> now, funnily enough, not if you'd ask mainstream, neoclassical, and classical economics. Its basic model is captured by the Robinson Crusoe and perhaps Friday uh, 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 parable. If you are a classical economist, you, need, you will stress that Robinson salvaged a knife from the ship wreckage and now allows Friday to use this capital for harvesting coconuts. In return, gets two coconuts for every three coconuts that Friday harvests. Uh, because capital is, of course, so valuable, and uh, Robinson had to, you know, live very frugally to get this knife from the from the ship. Um, and Friday stores most of that coconut in some cool place. Of course, he has to be frugal. He's a capitalist, and therefore gets these two coconuts of every three coconuts. In other words, he exploits his worker, but this must be the most favorable division of labor. That's the classical parable. Even easier if you're a neoclassical economist, that's what most of you would learn if they ever bothered to study uh, uh, undergraduate economics. You even need, only need Friday, and uh, you don't need, even need Friday, you only need Robinson. In his splendid isolation, he will do to make the point that economics is all about efficient allocation of resources. In this case, the 24 hours of time that Robinson has at his disposal, and he can either, either use it to harvest coconuts so that he can consume food, or he, he consumes his time directly as leisure. That's the decision that uh, Robinson is confronted with, and that boils down to what economics is about, these optimizing decisions about the resource endowment we have. In the most fundamental sense, it's the time we have available for an activity we don't like, that's work, and an activity we like, and that's leisure. 
It was only the theory of John Maynard Keynes, I think, that recognized the fundamental role of the financial system for capitalism, fundamental for better or worse. Actually, he thought towards the end of his life more for worse. The appropriate parable for his economics is more Walt Disney's Donald Duck, or actually, the key figure here is Dagobert Duck, you know, this Scrooge McDuck I got from Wikipedia, apparently. He was invented by Karl Barks. He's a bit later than Donald Duck. <laughs> the Dagobert, if those of you who don't know, is the rich uncle of Donald. And Donald is always up to some, some interesting new project that will, you know, make him rich. Donald is is the, the, the hero, and he has this rich uncle who monitors Donald's uh, income-generating activities very closely, but he's the financier and the venture capitalist of his ill-fated projects. And of course, the self-employed Donald works his socks off, usually fails, often rescued by his three younger nephews. So the rich uncle is the grand uncle of the nephews. These clever nephews are, of course, the employees in a way, the workers of, of Donald. But the ending is always the same. Fat goose Dagobert, Scrooge, seizes most of the return that's generated by Donald's project, while Donald can just survive and is still in debt towards his uncle and has to do a new project just to service that debt. <coughs> In other words, not any resource endowment time, nor those produced means of production capital, but credit restricts economic activity and the employment of resources. The interest rate that Uncle Scrooge uh, charges may be too high for full employment in Duck Village. And that made Keynes suggest that the government should come in and either support demand for Donald's products or employ Donald directly so that he is no longer under this you know, uh, uncertainty whether Dagobert will give him something and he finds employment that way, or let the central bank drive down the interest rate by producing the stuff that wealthy people and their banks want to hold in larger quantities than is conducive to full employment. Needless to say, Walt Disney never commissioned such a comic strip, and while the US government did quite a lot of exactly that. <laughs> I happen to think that Keynes, and I'm saying Keynes and not Keynesian, Keynes' theory is the most plausible theory of capitalism we have, but this means that for better or worse, as long as we have capitalism, we will have a financial system that is the gatekeeper of production and requires every economic market-directed activity to generate a surplus income, and that's the current interest rate. It's a laborless income, and that made it so scandalous, so to speak, for, for many religions. Islamic banking kept it uh, the longest, but like Shevket, I think it is basically a fiction. I was, at some point, I was a development economist. I was quite interested in that and couldn't really work out what the big difference is. Um, but, of course, medieval Christianity had a problem with it, and Germany had a, a, a usury law until the 1980s, when interest rates were so high that they had to change the law because many credit uh, uh, contracts would have been uh, invalid if they had kept the law. So we have to live with the banks in Europe and elsewhere for the time being, and public ownership is not necessarily making things better, as the Spanish Caixas and the German Landesbanken as well would show. But even if it is therefore not a matter of whether we uh, want them, it is quite timely to think about how much of them we want, I think. 
After all, the euro crisis is, in my view, a banking crisis in disguise that the dominant powers in the EU prefer to fight as a sovereign debt crisis. I stress that they prefer to frame it like a policy problem of fiscal misbehavior and so on. And it's, of course, the creditor countries that want that. And that's Germany, France, Netherlands, Finland, Luxembourg. Now, why can they do that? Well, partly Greece. Uh, gives them the reason to do so, and it's more or less Portugal, perhaps. It's the only country where public debt and not private debt uh, is the reason for the crisis. They can also do it because that shifts the burden of adjustment on those you can hold accountable, and these are fiscal authorities, while it's much harder to hold banks all over the world or private households to account for that. Well, you can always send in the IMF and the EU Commission and the ECB and say, so you now change this and that in your expenditure, in your public expenditure. And then last but not least, they can do that fight a banking crisis as a sovereign debt crisis because the whole edifice of economic governance in the monetary union is predicated on closely supervising governments and we have allowed the Basel approach to um, dominate the supervision of banks themselves, in other words, to self-regulate their supervision, to use their own risk models, for example, to estimate their capital requirements. And we have seen how well they did. All this is about to change, and that's my last uh, bit I want to say. And I'm quite optimistic, actually, that we will end up with a smaller banking system at the end. Because we will see sovereign default. Uh, it's already, you know, uh, something you cannot deny anymore, that Greece will not be able to pay this back, and it may be Portugal as well. We just hope that it doesn't come to the big, the Armageddon, um, which is Italy and, and Spain. That these sovereign defaults are themselves largely uh, the consequence of the financial crisis since 2007-8. And in a feedback loop now, some banks will go under or become much smaller. They're already partly selling off certain parts of their business. And the regulatory approach undergoes a very profound uh, and continuous change. We may get less competent and myopic banks, if not less greedy, but frankly, I don't uh, worry so much about the greed. I worry about the incompetence. So if we have competent greed, I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and finally, why I'm so sure that this is going to happen, that we will have a much more robust regulatory approach, is simply the fiscal capacities are exhausted. Governments cannot do a second big rescue package as they did after Lehman. And if the banks don't give in, we will see capital controls and no longer those integrated financial markets that we have seen so far. So in contrast to Philip, I think bankruptcy and the winding down of a share of the banking <laughs> system for good is not a problem. It's part of a solution. Thanks. Thank you. Now you've got to I'd like, if I may, to pick up on two things. Uh, one um, historical and the other contemporary. And if we could, uh, and the, first, the, the historical one is the, the theme that came up, in, uh, particularly in the first two contributions around usury and the prohibition to you, uh, against usury. Um, I'm sure I'm not going to be alone in not really knowing why anybody thought it was a bad idea and when they did think it was a bad idea, 
what they said about it and what, what you were restricted to under these prohibitions. Just a little bit, I mean, Philip, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, the formation of the hostility to usury. How, how, did that, how did that come about? You didn't let other people in, well, Shevka particularly, about the same principle in, in the East. Yes, I, I think in, in the Quran it's um, it's condemned without reasons being given. Isn't that right? Why, why usury is, is such an awful thing? In in European thought, it goes back to Aristotle, obviously, who who thought that money couldn't be productive, whereas people could be productive and other things could be productive, but money couldn't be. So that there was some kind of injustice of trying to make money out of money on the basis of something that's passive and inert and doesn't really do anything, you just pass it around, which is possibly a misunderstanding if money is essentially credit even then, <laughs> and that's it, it is uh, complicated. But I think it goes back much, much older than that. I think even the ancient Sumerian um, empires were concerned about the phenomenon of debt slavery, whereby if a household gets, has a bad harvest, gets into debt and then has to pay back some of its tools or means of subsistence or seed in order to pay the interest on its debt, then it's gradually losing its chance to survive for itself. And you had a, a problem in the ancient Sumerian Empire whereby so many farmers were going bankrupt, going into debt slavery uh, because their, their debts grew beyond their control that the land wasn't being farmed anymore. And then the priests and the temples and all the rich people who, who profited from a productive economy realised they were much worse off. Without, so they needed to have these big jubilees, debt cancellations. And I think the prohibition on interest is usually... It, it usually comes out of a fear that if... if credit is given for consumption in particular instead of for productive um, activity, then there's a real danger of what it might do to the long-term future productive activity. So I, I would want to say there's a, there's a huge moral distinction between lending for productive activity, the sort of thing Adam Smith really liked, in how you use your time, and lending simply for consumption. But in our recent economy, lending for consumption has been the means of generating demand so that productive activity can take place. Right. So it's, it's complicated. Now, just, just one more thing on this, Philip. Um, how, given that both Islam and Christianity uh, had some prohibition against usury, uh, we saw from Shevket how it was, as it were, overcome subtly within the institutions of financing there. How did the Christian communities overcome the prohibition? Well, there was the same kind of subtlety going on. Um, a lot of the Franciscans and um, scholastics were finding ways of, of making arguments about how something like this could take place in the medieval context. Now, I can't remember all, all the details of it. In the case of England, <coughs> the eighth after his reformation, one of his important acts in about 1648 was to make lending an interest legal. Right. And so um, a sovereign decision could, could bring about a change. And then once you have one economy lending an interest where profits can be made, that has a big impact 
on how everyone else be behaves. Were there, were there limits follow. to interest? I mean, would you be? Uh, I can't. I can't remember the details. And obviously, there's that German law we heard about where yeah, um, we simply stated eight percent is the limit uh -huh. for consumer yes. credit. Right. Yes. So, uh, there, is, there is, a, I think, there is, at least in medieval Europe, um, there is an explicit distinction between some reasonable rate of interest and a usurious rate of interest that uh, uh, courts, uh, courts are willing to tolerate this reasonable rate of interest. But the, and, and the other similarity I would like to emphasize is the attempt in both the West and the East to find ways of hiding this interest. I, I mentioned this uh, double sale thing. The double sale thing, which is used also in some ways in uh, the double sale thing in the Middle East is when you, let's say, you want to, you want to borrow hundred hundred gold pieces from somebody, and so the the lender says, okay, I will give you a hundred gold pieces, which are a hundred dinar, but I also want to sell you today this plastic glass, which is worth ten gold pieces. And you will pay me in a year, you will pay back my 100 dinars plus the cost of this plastic glass, 10 dinars. So I expect from you 110 dinars in a year's time. And that's how the contract is written. You notice there is no mention of interest. And that's how the, <laughs> the double sale is completed. You see similar kinds of devices in, in, in medieval Europe. One of the things these merchants and the financiers did was this, what later came to be known as the bills of exchange. Let's say a merchant in one town borrows in the local currency, okay, and in, in return for which he gives a piece of paper and then his colleague is paid in 500 miles or in some other part of the continent in another port in uh, three months later or six months later in some other currency. Okay? And of course, um, it's just not a currency, simple currency exchange because there is a borrowing element as well. <laughs> so. In these kinds of contracts, they never talk about an interest, but they manipulate the exchange rate so that the, this kind of contract hides a, an interest pay, payment as well. And but interest is never never mentioned. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I want to come now to a, a second issue. This uh, brings in culture. I just want to put something to you. Just mentioned to, to just not challenge your optimism, but to, to see how far you can sustain it. Philip, Philip's worry, what I think, was that an economy in which debt was circular, circulating around consumption 
was one which will inevitably, inevitably produce cycles of crisis of the sort that we're seeing. And that, uh, but that, that one shouldn't then argue for an elimination of all debt, but you'd have to see that it was had its foundation in production instead. Is that roughly right? I, I would put it yourself. Um, that, that's what I said just now, but I'm yeah. not sure I believe myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, it, yes, that's one angle into it, definitely. Right. I mean, at least for, if you're going to have a reform of a banking system that's still focused on consumption, I suppose you're, you're thinking that, at least morally speaking, this would be worse than one which was focused on production. Would it be economically worse, just so we can get that? Um, no, in, in fact, it's pragmatic because in an economic system you need consumers, you need demand, and we can't all be producers because if we're all producers making a profit, then we're all appropriating the wealth to ourselves. So where does that wealth come from? In a way, you need a class of borrowers, consumers, in order to redistribute the wealth from those who are profitable capitalists in order to um, uh, create the demand that means that the capitalists can make profits. Okay, then in that case, since, since I've failed to put the right words in your mouth, perhaps you could pick up on what Valtrad was saying about the possibility of a kind of um, general optimism through a smaller banking system and, uh, the bankruptcy. and bankruptcy. Well... <laughs> Yes, I'd, li I'd like to know how default will be uh, um, a great solution, that it, it'll be Greece and Portugal and hopefully not Italy and Spain that catch the contagion, that it will be all sorts of um, unreliable, profligate banks, whether big or small, that head towards bankruptcy, but we can have a leaner, uh, more competent still just as we but more competent banking system and I, I see that like that should be essential my, my worry is to what extent are the competent banks and beyond that the nations exposed to the excesses of the incompetent so that if you have default and bankruptcy <laughs> might it not bring down the best of them too that is indeed always a problem, and I'm not, I can't say, you know, I have the plan of how to build back the European banking system, and that would also, but I wouldn't sit here if I had. Um, <laughs> but what I insist on is that bankruptcy is a very important um, institution of capitalism for the very reason that you actually mentioned, because it tends to be as economies mature, they have an ever bigger a bulk of an amount of claims that are, uh, you know, that have to be paid interest on and so on. So, at some point, you need, so to speak, to bring that back because it is a tax on the productive system. It is like that. Now, it has created great riches, um, and in that sense, you know, we can dis discuss whether it's worth ca having capitalism. But you cannot discuss capitalism without banks. And I'm saying, and in that system, bankruptcy is important. Your question is a quite, you know, I can say bankruptcy now, but it is exactly that we, at the moment, hold it back because we don't know how disorderly 
orderly default would take place without all the contagion. Now, the short answer has been already given in Bejot, Walter Bejot, to say discount freely. In other words, the central bank keeps it, its discount window open, has perhaps, in contrast to at the moment, a penalty interest rate, a high interest rate that may be usurious. Um, to deal with that people don't just take advantage of it, and then mop up afterwards, which in the present situation would mean the European Central Bank must allow to draw on its unlimited resources, that is, it can just print the stuff that everybody wants to hold, but for all the insolvencies that will happen, because Greece cannot fully pay back debt, in turn will lead to some bankruptcies among banks. We have this EFSF, the European Financial Stability Facility, that will then take over those that go in insolvent. That is then a fiscal problem. Our issue at the moment is that the governments are not ready to give the ECB the green light by saying, and afterwards we mop up. And therefore, the ECB must be concerned about its own balance to protect its own balance sheet and cannot use the power that it has for a credit or liquidity crisis. So just come back then, Philip. There was, there was a sense of what you were talking about of a, a kind of general unsustainability of a debt economy. Is, is, is that your view that, as it were, long time, these repair jobs, they're just cycling problems? Y yes. Um, the, the reason why I think uh, a debt economy is ultimately unsustainable is for a reason I've not mentioned today. And it's, it's not because there are such things as bubbles, debt, debt fueled bubbles, and uh, those can expand as, as far as they want. And I think the evidence of history, when you look at um, uh, the, the quantity of assets in things like credit default swaps, is that they've got just enormous and get to any kind of astronomical number and it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter the, the problem is not the how astronomical the numbers are the problem it lies when you um, I mean my this is my explanation of the credit crunch which uh, not many people agree with is that what happened is the the global economy was doing doing so wonderfully well but, uh, and expanding at great exponential rates, but our planet is finite. We've only got a finite amount of commodities. They can only be expanded at sort of arithmetic rates or efficiency savings, only expand things at arithmetic rates. Interest um, goes up at geometric rates. You have this, um, the, this big rise in commodity prices, which fed through into inflation. And the central banks then, to deal with the inflation that was mainly driven by things like the oil price, but also grain prices, they had to raise interest rates. And so the, sub, the people like the, the holders of subprime mortgages, they were hit from all sides. Not only were their teaser rates expiring, so they hadn't had to pay more, they had to pay a lot more for their fuel, they had to pay a lot more for their food, and suddenly they were hit from all sides. And at that point, no one wanted to take out subprime mortgages anymore. And the reason, you see, my, my strange argument is that you could have a subprime mortgage lending 
mad as it is to these people with no income, no job and no assets uh, who, who's, who are simply refinancing their debt because uh, house prices go up. That could go on indefinitely. Everyone says it can't. I say it can because look who's putting up the money. Who's actually buying? Where does the money come from that is buying? It's coming out of the major financial institutions. It's, it's coming through those, those small, uh, very... Um, um, very dubious uh, mortgage agencies. They're being lent to um, people with no income, no assets. But those people could continue to refinance, and if they can't, then they could be replaced by another one. I mean, who wouldn't want, uh, to, with you've got no assets whatsoever, for someone to give you a 110% loan uh, on a property that's price will accelerate away? And if every, that continues, then the price will accelerate away because the money will continue being fed back into the system. So, for example, uh, people who were buying credit default swaps, I believe, were actually funding, uh, um, who were who betting on, on the, the collateralized debt obligations going bust. They were actually funding the creation of more and more of these. There's all sorts of complicated uh, things going on. So I think debt can go on forever. The subprime crisis... Yes, you could see it was probably going to happen with the teaser rates going up, and some people were betting, but not many were betting it was going to happen. But it's only when you set our fanciful economy of astronomical figures in terms of a finite world and then accept that people prefer to consume material goods rather than purely incorporeal or experiential goods, then you have an absolute collision. And this was why I was saying back in 2001, we're about to have this collision. It will get the first taste of it when I follow a, a chap called Chris Gabrowski, who used to edit Petroleum Review, who keeps making predictions of when things are happening. It's now his arguments have moved from geological ones to economic ones, and, but I think we're in trouble for 2012. Okay. Thank you, Philip. I'm going uh, on. Uh, Shefka, you to add something? I, I, I want to <coughs> offer an Turkish angle on the current crisis, the, the banking and financial crisis. If uh, those of you who are reading the newspapers may have noticed that actually in this case Turkey is conspicuously absent in the, in the financial crisis. Turkey is not experiencing a financial or a banking crisis at the moment. In fact, its banking system is quite strong and its government has a very low level of debt, one of the lowest in Europe. Now, that's not really because the Turkish bankers are any less greedy than the Euro their European counterparts or more competent than their European counterparts. It's because we experienced a very similar cycle only 10 years ago. The 1980s and 1990s was a period of financial liberalization and uh, accompanied by large public sector deficits and then intensified by corruption uh, in the banking sector and basically and and the absence of regulation I should add that in the 1990s those terrible 1990s uh, 
On paper, there was banking regulation, but the regulators chose to look the other way uh, at best, and perhaps at times uh, they were paid to look the other way. And, but there was a very severe crisis, both for the gov government, for public finances, and also for the financial sector. Uh, very in 2001, in magnitude very similar to the ones, uh, say, being mentioned for United States, UK, in terms of its, its the size, relative size in relation to GDP and so on. But uh, what has happened is that in the past decade, Turkish economy, Turkish financial sector, Turkish society has been living in the, under the shadow of this severe crisis, and, and behavior has changed. Um, there is now real regulation. There has been real regulation. The banking sector has changed its ways and has been more careful. And all those politicians of the 1990s who kept on spending and running deficits and accumulating debt have been kicked out of office by the voters. So um, I want to draw some sort of a more general lesson out of this. And my, my, uh, the, the point I would like to make is that these financial crises come and go, but there are some lessons drawn from them. For in the 1930s, developed economies, developed societies, industrial societies drew some lessons and then developed new regulation. Uh, they learned, they decided that it was prudent, it was wise to regulate the banking sector closely, to, to build firewalls between the banking sector and other sectors and so on and so forth. And at least one generation would lived with the experience of the Great Depression and behave differently. What happened in Western Europe and United States in the last uh, two, three decades is that all those people have passed away and now we have a new generation with no memories. And this generation had the overconfidence to think that capitalism was now different and much more powerful and much more efficient, that these old-fashioned old crises, these financial crises and bank crises of the old times did not apply to the new version, new and improved version of capitalism. So they demolished all those laws that were passed in the 1930s. Uh, for regulation and uh, separation of the financial sector and so on. And hence we have something very similar. So I suspect that uh, these financial and banking crises are bound to repeat, especially after one generation moves on and a new one comes in with very little memory of what happened in the past. Okay, if you don't mind, I'm going to open it up now. Uh, so it's an opportunity now for people in the audience to ask questions or even make a contribution if you understand what's happening in the 
of money, I think, is much more relevant today than this crisis. So why don't we see Islamic finance as a way of ethical financing, ethical investment, instead of just a fiction? I do realize, like, you know, after World War II, Islamic finance became to resemble uh, traditional finance, like more fictitious trades, but that wasn't the concept. So also in religion or in finance, it all goes back to ethical uh, ethics. So that's, I think, that's, that's the basic. Sure, well, um, I mean, it's, it is uh, one thing to say that there should be no interest and money should not be made out of money, but, but you go back to the early period of Islam and you've realized that there is the recognition that this, is, this may be a good principle, but at the end of the day, credit and interest go, at least de facto interest, go hand in hand. So, my reading of all the Islamic institutions of credit finance is that they recognize that credit financial systems cannot really function without interest, but they have ways of hiding it or they have ways of putting it in some place. And I happen to think that you know the Islamic banking has a good insight, a much better than the one that the Christians had when Simon earlier asked Philip how come that 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 you know prohibition of usury was overcome in the Christian thing. Well, the Christians called it at some point the reward for deferred consumption. So it was a, a virtue not to, to uh, uh, consume and lend it out to somebody, and therefore you had to get this, this interest rate. So you just reframe what interest is. I think it's much more correct what you said, what interest is. It's getting money and income out of lending money. And Keynes said it's not the time preference, as we then called it in neoclassical economics, it's a liquidity preference. You can lose your the money that you have lent out because somebody else just runs off with it. And for that, you want to have that risk, that risk you want to have uh, confirmed. And you have your own obligations where you have to pay, and you may then not be able to pay because you had lent out your money, and so on and so forth. Well, <laughs> the point is, in a way, interest is, is very important for the functioning of capitalism. This is why what Philip just said cannot happen, that you can have a Ponzi scheme like with the subprime lending, because think about it. If we would keep on rising this debt stock that the economy has to service, if you have a relationship that's normal for OECD country, a capital stock that's about 400% of, of your annual income, if you have an interest rate of 25%, you would pay the whole GDP of a year would go just in the interest rate on this capital stock. If you have a capital or debt stock of eight, you would have 12.5% of interest rate would already be enough to eat up your whole uh, income of a year with no wages, rental income, nothing, just to service the debt stock. Because you have to pay this interest rate, it cannot go on forever. 
to build up these debt levels. And therefore, you also need bankruptcy to, from time to time to put it down. And it's also, interest has a very funny and ambivalent relationship to the ecological problem. On the one hand, a high interest rate says, exploit that resource today. Liquidate everything you can. So that's bad for ecology. But it also keeps production scarcer than if we had zero interest rates. Otherwise, you know, we would just start any of our nice little projects. But no, the bank says to you, it must earn 5% that go to me, at least. And that keeps production also scarce. So capitalism is not necessarily bad for ecology. It is when it comes with a high interest rate, which you see in developing countries, that when they are under strain, they have to cut down their rainforests, they have to exploit their mines just to service the debt. And okay. therefore, it's a bit more difficult. Okay, Sorry. thanks very much. So we'll take another question. There's one here, and then we'll have one there. Yes, I mean, I think because of this latest uh, events, actually, especially which is uh, originated from the Greek debt, this, this created much attention, actually, from everybody. Uh, and one may ask a question. Greece, as we know, actually has not incurred any uh, growth in the last 15 years. Uh, almost, uh, the average is almost 0%. And the thing is that, especially the German banking system actually kept on lending money to Greece in, in more than two decades. So I think in the banking systems, there must be some certain amount of awareness concerning the economies that they lend money to. And <coughs> some certain amount of information which should be in circle or which should, which you should gather, actually. So how can you evaluate on this issue, actually, banking system or the institutions lending money to a country which has never incurred any growth rate actually in, in the last You're period. talking about Greece? Greece, yes. Greece had extraordinary good growth rates. In the last 15 years actually? Yes. As far as I know, the average is very close to zero. No. <laughs> Certainly not. I mean, and, and since ever since they were in the euro area, they had 4 and 4.5 percent. This is why they were so immediately under the in under surveillance, because still they had such high uh, fiscal deficits, even though they had really very decent growth rates. So can we, in a way, say that the money to be borrowed by the Greece was not used for investments, rather was used in investing capital markets? So it was something. Mm -hmm. it's, I just want to. Very quickly, if you can explain both stupid people like me, uh, you drew a distinction between the situation we have at the moment as a, a sovereign debt crisis or a banking crisis, and you wanted to say it was a banking crisis which was made to appear as if it was a sovereign debt crisis. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? Well, on the one hand, we have countries like Ireland and Spain that really never had a fiscal problem. but having to give guarantees to their banks or being so idiotic as to the, the, the Irish government just overnight taking over all the debt that their banks had and making national debt, then you have it turned into a fiscal debt. You should just now say, return it and just write down some of that. And it's the private bondholders who have to take the, uh, the hit. So it's not that it isn't a sovereign debt crisis now, it's just that only there because of the bank. No, it appears now as that. And the other thing is countries even like, say, <laughs> France, that is also about to lose its AAA rating. Well, we had the financial crisis. Uh, we had huge expansion of debt to stabilize demand. 
and therefore raised our uh, debt levels. And now the, 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 the banks that had been bailed out by that and had created the recession turned the table and say, oh, you have such bad uh, growth rates and such high debt, you can't be good and go out and raise the interest rates on, on bonds. Okay, well, we will hear, and then one of the back. My name is George Lieberman, I'm the one with the OEC, and my question is about the blending of uh, Islamic finance and Western finance. If I'm a bondholder of, a, say, a bank, uh, of bank debt, and the regulatory system or, or the government makes me, forces me to accept, in, in times of trouble, to accept equity in the bank instead of my, my money that I lent to this bank. And doesn't this automatically make me a partner in this venture and basically make me Islamic finance compliant? <laughs> I am sure it can be interpreted in this fashion. It is possible to to develop, let's say, an instrument or to, to mechanism so that uh, your loan become, be, may become an equity. But, but what, I, what I was pointing out, that a good part of Islam, credit under Islamic finance system, in fact, works <coughs> this way. It's, it's not considered credit, but it's considered both the lending and the borrowing is considered being part of equity. Okay, uh, up the back, yeah. My name is Jamila Speak up, please. Jamila um, With the global financial crisis in 2008 and the recently this Eurozone crisis, can I say that um, the capitalist system is about to collapse? And if so, what do you think is the future of the Europe in terms of um, economic system? Okay, well, Philip, you were the closest to that. I really like my disagreements with, with Alshra, because on the one hand, I say the debts can expand indefinitely, and she says Ponzi schemes can't expand indefinitely. So I'm saying no collapse, and she's saying we, have, we could have bankruptcies. On the other hand, um, I do think that, that there'll be... Uh, a really major significant crisis and that um, defaults will lead to contagion, that there will be the reasonably healthy, strong good banks exposed to the banks that have lent on wisely. And this ultimately, when it's gone beyond the size that, that can be dealt with in the way it was dealt with in 2008, where governments built bring up these bailout funds, it would lead to um, some kind of short-term catastrophe. Now, these catastrophes are um, frequent and widespread and have happened in many countries. My guess is that when the countries have recovered, and sometimes they do cover very, recover very quickly, it's not simply a matter of returning to old-fashioned morality of only of repaying your debts and only lending to people who can repay their debts, though that's obviously an important part of it. Um, it's to do with 
attracting foreign investment interaction with other countries that haven't had that kind of crisis. So if we do have a big catastrophe, I think what will really count is that the way the relations um, then play out between European and United countries and United States on the one hand and countries such as China which are not in any debt in any shape or form at producer countries who might have more freedom for manoeuvre and to what extent China needs us and can use us for its purposes will determine how serious the crisis is and where do we get out of it but I suspect that's a very different answer. Okay, uh, yeah, actually, one here and then. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, um, after the most recent financial crisis in, in Great Britain, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, there has come a time where the words now they mean the opposite, or the opposite means the other, the other word, like, for example, um, has profit-oriented banks and there's, yeah. I would say, nothing wrong with it as, or not more wrong than with capitalism, let me put it that way. I mean, I um, can see that one can have alternative ways of, of, of uh, um, organizing your economic activities, but at the moment we are not, and it's interesting that nobody talks really about the end of capitalism. I mean, you asked about capitalism come down. I, I just don't see that the system as such comes down, although parts of it do go under and have to. There, is, there has been recently this whole movement of microfinance in, in third world countries, you know, where you had these credit uh, unions and so on, and especially women who had never access to the formal banking system suddenly can have this credit... Um, rings or whatever, they can't think of the word at the moment. But you have seen there, they can, even there can be <coughs> problems of over-indebtedness are there as well. There was this whole wave of farmers that committed suicide because they couldn't pay these interest rates anymore. It's, and actually they, they have much higher interest rates than any commercial bank. It's just when you, when you suppress interest rates in a country like India, well, the banks start to ration the credit, and so you have the queuing phenomenon, and then guess what? The poor woman who sells vegetables in the street doesn't get access to these funds. And so she paid much higher interest rates, always still better than these, these usurious uh, day lenders and so on, but their interest rates are high. 
um, and therefore you had in the 19th century all over Europe these self-help credit institutions, Raiffeisen, Banken, and things like that. But overall, you know, you can't finance Mercedes-Benz with small-scale credit. I'm afraid if you have global firms, they need a big, larger-scale finance, and that's... I'm afraid we've uh, run out of time, but um, that was a very salutary Thank you everybody for taking us through this and I think we'll thank our speakers. Thank you.